Okay, good evening. Uh, tonight I'd like to begin again with a short sutta and then um, offer some more uh, reflections from the teachings of Lumpur Samedo. And for the uh, this sutta I'd like to share uh, this evening, wanted to uh, to read the other sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya, and this is uh, a sutta that is also quite famous, and uh, many people probably know uh, the teaching, the Buddha's teaching to his uh, son Rahula, and the the first of the two teachings uh, that appear in the Majjhima Nikaya, and this is the uh, the one that he gave to his son when. Uh, Rahula was probably about seven years old. And so this is quite a short sutta, but um, I think on the theme of coming back to the basics, this is really a great sutta that demonstrates, you know, the Buddha really presenting some of the, you know, really the basics of his teachings. And it's quite interesting to see, you know, what he decides to to teach to his, his young son on this occasion. So this is Sutta number 61 from the Majjhima Nikaya. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary. Now on that occasion the Venerable Rahula was living at Ambalatika. Then when it was evening, the Blessed One rose from meditation and went to the Venerable Rahula at Ambalatika. The Venerable Rahula saw the Blessed One coming in the distance and made a seat ready and set out water for washing the feet. The Blessed One sat down on the seat, made ready and washed his feet. The Venerable Rahula paid homage to him and sat down at one side. Then the Blessed One left a little water in the water vessel and asked the Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see this little water left in the water vessel? Yes, Venerable Sir. Even so little, Rahula, is the recluseship of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. Then the Blessed One threw away the little water that was left and asked the Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see that little water that was thrown away? Yes, Venerable Sir. Even so, Rahula, those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have thrown away their recluseship. Then the Blessed One turned the water vessel upside down and asked the Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see this water vessel turned upside down? Yes, Venerable Sir. Even so, Rahula, those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have turned their recluseship upside down. Then the Blessed One turned the water vessel right way up again and asked the Venerable Rahula, Rahula, do you see this hollow, empty water vessel? Yes, Venerable Sir. Even so hollow and empty, Rahula, is the recluseship of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. Suppose, Rahula, there were a royal tusker elephant with tusks as long as chariot poles, full-grown in stature, high-bred and accustomed to battle. In battle, he would perform his task with his forefeet and his hindfeet, with his forequarters and his hindquarters, with his head and his ears, with his tusks and his tail, yet he would keep back his trunk. 
Then his rider would think, this royal tusker elephant with tusks as long as chariot poles performs his task in battle with his forefeet and his hind feet, yet he keeps back his trunk. He has not yet given up his life. But when the royal tusker elephant performs his task in battle with his forefeet and his hind feet, with his forequarters and his hindquarters, with his head and his ears, with his tusks and his tail, and also with his trunk, then his rider would think, this royal tusker elephant with tusks as long as chariot poles performs his task in battle with his forefeet and his hindfeet, and also with his trunk. He has given up his life. Now there is nothing this royal tusker elephant would not do. So too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train thus. I will not utter a falsehood, even as a joke. What do you think, Rahula? What is the purpose of a mirror? For the purpose of reflection, Venerable Sir. So too, Rahula, an action with the body should be done after repeated reflection. An action by speech should be done after repeated reflection. An action by mind should be done after repeated reflection. Rahula, when you wish to do an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Would this action that I wish to do with the body lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results? When you reflect, if you know, this action that I wish to do with the body would lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both. It is an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results. Then you definitely should not do such an action with the body. But when you reflect, if you know this action that I wish to do with the body would not lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both, it is a wholesome bodily action with pleasant consequences, with pleasant results. Then you may do such an action with the body. Also, Rahula, while you are doing an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Does this action that I am doing with the body lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the, or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results? When you reflect, if you know this action that I am doing with the body leads to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both, it is an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results, then you should suspend such a bodily action. But when you reflect, if you know this action that I am doing with the body does not lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both, it is a wholesome bodily action with pleasant consequences, with pleasant results. Then you may continue in such a bodily action. Also, Rahula, after you have done an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Did this action that I did with the body lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both? Was it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results? When you reflect, 
if you know this action that I did with the body led to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both. It was an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results. Then you should confess such a bodily action, reveal it, and lay it open to the teacher or to your wise companions in the holy life. Having confessed it, revealed it, and laid it open, you should undertake restraint for the future. But when you reflect, if you know this action that I did with the body did not lead to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both, it was a wholesome bodily action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results. You can abide happy and glad, training day and night in wholesome states. Then the Buddha repeats the same teachings for actions of speech and actions of mind. Rahula, whatever recluses and Brahmins in the past purified their bodily action, their verbal action, and their mental action, all did so by repeatedly reflecting thus. Whatever recluses and Brahmins in the future will purify their bodily action, their verbal action and their mental action, all will do so by repeatedly reflecting thus. Whatever recluses and Brahmins in the present are purifying their bodily action, their verbal action, and their mental action, all are doing so by repeatedly reflecting thus. Therefore, Rahula, you should train thus. We will purify our bodily action, our verbal action, and our mental action by repeatedly reflecting upon them. This is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Rahula was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. With mental action that uh, was unwholesome, does the Buddha say to do something different other than confess it? Let's see. Yeah, so I think for the... Yeah, pretty much for all of the, uh, the actions of speech and... Mind, I believe it's the same. I think if it's different for mind, yeah, it's a different phrasing. Oh, let's see. I think it's an important distinction because in that sutta that uh, Buddha has you confess unwholesome actions that were done in the past by body and speech, but with mind, I think he, he says something different there that uh, mm. you should undertake restraint for yourself or something like that. But uh, uh, or else we'd be always telling everybody about our horrible mental states. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're not finding it? Yeah, I'm not almost, seeing it right away. Almost sure it's there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 interesting. It's saying the same. I must have read a different translation. Okay, yeah, sorry, continue. Okay, so are there any comments or questions for the senior monks on this? Uh, All right, thank you, Ajahn. Uh, just to clarify, um, what, what is meant by men mental action? I think that would just be uh, thoughts, thoughts and wholesome or unwholesome mental states. Yeah. Oh, okay, and, and I guess as a follow-up, um, yeah, the uh, wholesome, unwholesome actions by body and mind, uh, by body and speech, they seem to be fairly uh, under your control. 
and kind of bounded by the precepts. But uh, the actions of mind, the thoughts are, seems to be fairly involuntary most of the time. And yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that's, I'm 99% sure that in that sutta, uh, if it wasn't ellipsist, the uh, unwholesome actions by mind, the Buddha doesn't have you confess them, but he, I don't know if Ajahn Kodama remembers that. I like remember seeing, you may want to just check if there's a footnote around the, around the mental. Oh, there is a footnote. I feel like there might just there, be, yeah. Bhikkhu Bodhi yeah. might just uh, elaborate uh, on it. Might be worth checking that footnote. Oh, right, yeah, okay, there is a footnote, yeah. That's kind of hidden there. Right, yeah, sorry, so, um, yeah, I didn't see that footnote. Yeah, it says, in the section, however, the phrase, then you should confess such a bodily action and laid it open is replaced by the following, then you should be repelled, humiliated, and disgusted by that mental action, having become repelled, humiliated, and disgusted by that mental action. The substitution is made because unwholesome thoughts, unlike bodily and verbal transgressions, do not require confession as a means of exoneration. Sorry, yeah. Um, yeah, and I wanted to uh, bring this back to, uh, I guess, the, what we heard from Long Persimedo yesterday during his uh, experience where, and I've heard this him say this in other talks, where he'll kind of watch the unwholesome thoughts and formations without, like, kind of letting them flow out in a way or flow by. He's kind of uh, almost like purifying his mind his mental, uh, yeah, mental, his mind without kind of, uh, he says he's not suppressing and he's not necessarily uh, uh, countering or something. He's just kind of letting it go. I was wondering uh, if you had any thoughts on how that might tie in with this sutta. It doesn't sound like he was, yeah, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think sometimes when we hear this th phrase phraseology, like one should be uh, humiliated, disgusted, and horrified by uh, by one's unwholesome mental states and destroy them and get rid of them as quickly as possible, uh, you know, it it can be a bit misleading because then in the course of practice, you, that's why it's helpful to have teachers like Longpur Cha and Ajahn Sumedho because you find that the way to the way to quote unquote get rid of these things is sometimes to watch passively, sometimes to let go. This is the Sabhasava Sutta, Majjhimitakaya 2, talks a lot sometimes to abandon by restraining, sometimes to abandon by enduring, and so on. And But then we have to be careful that we don't add more defilements on top of the defilements. So if we get, we get angry and then we're humiliated and horrified by that and then direct it more towards ourselves and then it can strengthen it so so it's a bit more it's a bit more nuanced I think than the Ajahn Kurnam was reaching for the mic too. Yeah just to add to that um, if you're looking for another sutta the uh, was it like the five kinds of, of thought what was it the uh, removal of distracting thoughts. The removal of distracting thoughts right yeah that's give you that gives you five approaches to take when You've got some uh, un unwieldy mind moments going on, and you know it starts from the uh, the beginning of trying to counter it with an opposite thought, and then going through things like um, ignoring it or you know noticing the danger uh, if you pursue it, uh, going back to the root, uh, the underlying state of mind to see if uh, you can uh, remove it there. So kind of gentle and insightful ways to do it, but 
and just as Ajinanika was just saying, you know, sort of like if it's just overwhelming and it's going to bring you a lot of uh, difficulty, cause a lot of suffering to yourself and others, and take you to places where you really don't want to go, and it's persistent, then that you can pull out the, you know, just you know, firm, don't go there, stop, put it down, go do something else, you know, that kind of real firm determination to put, you know, to, to put it down before you do harm, before you act on it. Just as an aside to that, as an interesting piece of trivia, I guess there was a famous uh, Chinese monk in the past who spent 40 years meditating on the word no, just telling himself no over and over again. <laughs> That's the word wu, which means uh, no, but it also means empty. All right. Uh, then we can uh, move on to a few teachings by uh, Lumpur Samedo. And last evening, uh, we're kind of in the middle of um, one of the talks. So I'll just finish up that and then uh, have another, uh, another talk I'd like to read as well. Okay, so we're reading the talk titled Happiness, Unhappiness, and Nibbana. Birth means old age, sickness, and death, but that's to do with your body, it's not you. Your human body is not really yours. No matter what your particular appearance might be, whether you're healthy or sickly, beautiful or not beautiful, black or white or whatever, it's all not self. This is what we mean by anatta. Human bodies belong to nature and follow the laws of nature. They are born, they grow up, they age, and they die. We may understand that rationally, but emotionally there is a very strong attachment to the body. In meditation, we begin to see this attachment. We don't take the position that we shouldn't be attached, saying, the problem with me is that I'm attached to my body. I shouldn't be. It's bad, isn't it? If I was a wise person, I wouldn't be attached to it. That's starting from an ideal. It's like trying to start climbing a tree from the top, saying, I should be at the top of the tree. I shouldn't be down here. But much as we'd like to think we're at the top, we have to accept humbly that we aren't. To begin with, we have to be at the trunk of the tree where the roots are, looking at the most coarse and ordinary things before we can start identifying with anything at the top of the tree. This is the way of wise reflection. The practice is not one of purifying the mind and then attaching to purity. It's not just trying to refine consciousness so that we can induce high states of concentration whenever we feel like it, because even the most refined states of sensory consciousness are unsatisfactory. They're dependent on so many other things. Nibbana is not dependent on any other condition. Conditions of inequality, be they ugly, nasty, beautiful, refined, or whatever, arise and pass away, but they don't interfere with Nibbana, with the peace of the mind. We don't incline away from the sense world through aversion, because if we try to annihilate the senses, that too becomes a habit we blindly acquire trying to get rid of what we don't like. That's why we have to be very patient. This lifetime as a human being is a lifetime of meditation. See the span of meditation as the rest of your life rather than just a 10-day retreat. You may think, I meditated on retreat for 10 days. I thought I was enlightened, but when I got home, I somehow didn't feel enlightened anymore. 
I'd like to go back and do a longer retreat where I can feel more enlightened than I did last time. It would be nice to have a higher state of consciousness. In fact, the more refined your experience on retreat, the more coarse your daily life must seem. You have highs, but when you go back to the mundane daily routines of life in the city, it's even worse than before. After going so high, the ordinariness of life seems much more ordinary, gross, and unpleasant. The way to insight wisdom is not having preferences for refinement over coarseness, but recognizing that both refined and coarse consciousness are impermanent conditions, that they're unsatisfactory, that their nature will never satisfy us, and they're anatta, they're not what we are, not ours. Thus the Buddhist teaching is very simple. What could be simpler than what is born must die? It's not some great new philosophical discovery. Even illiterate tribal people know that. You don't have to study in university to know it. When we're young, we think, I've got so many years left of youth and happiness. If we're beautiful, we think, I'm going to be young and beautiful forever, because it seems that way. When we're 20 years old, having a good time, life is wonderful, and if somebody says, you're going to die someday, we may think, what a depressing person, let's not invite him to our house again. We don't want to think about death, we want to think about how wonderful life is, how much pleasure we can get out of it, but as meditators we reflect on growing old and dying. This is not being morbid, sick, or depressing, it's considering the whole cycle of existence, and when we know that cycle, we are more careful about how we live. People do horrible things because they don't wisely reflect on and consider that they will die. They just follow their passions and feelings of the moment, trying to obtain pleasure and feeling angry and depressed when life doesn't give them what they want. Reflect on your own life and death and the cycles of nature. Observe what delights and what depresses you. See how we can feel very positive or very negative. Notice how we notice how we want to attach to beauty, pleasant feelings, or inspiration. It's really nice to feel inspired, isn't it? Buddhism is the greatest religion of them all. Or, when I discovered the Buddha, I was so happy. It's a wonderful discovery. When we become a little doubtful, a little depressed, we read an inspiring book and get high. But remember, being high is an impermanent condition. It's like becoming happy. You have to keep sustaining it, and after you keep doing something over and over again, you no longer feel happy with it. How many sweets can you eat? First they make you happy, then they make you sick. So depending on religious inspiration is not enough. If you attach to inspiration, when you become fed up with Buddhism, you'll go off and find some new thing to inspire you. It's like attaching to romance. When it disappears from a relationship, you start looking for someone else to feel romantic about. Years ago in America, I met a woman who'd been married six times, and she was only about 33. I said, you'd think you would have learned after the third or fourth time. Why do you keep getting married? She said, it's the romance. I don't like the other side, but I love the romance. At least she was honest, but not terribly wise. Romance is a condition that leads to disillusionment. Romance, inspiration, excitement, adventure, all these things rise to a peak and then condition their opposites, 
just as an inhalation conditions an exhalation. Just think of inhaling all the time. It would be like having one romance after another. How long can you inhale? The inhalation conditions the exhalation. Both are necessary. Birth conditions death. Hope conditions despair. And inspiration conditions disillusionment. So when we attach to hope, we're going to feel despair. When we attach to excitement, it will take us to boredom. When we attach to romance, it will take us to disillusionment and divorce. When we attach to life, it takes us to death. So recognize that it's the attachment that causes suffering, attaching to conditions and expecting them to be more than what they are. For so many people, so much of life seems to be waiting and hoping for something to happen, expecting and anticipating some success or pleasure, or maybe worrying and fearing that some painful, unpleasant thing is just lying in wait. You may hope you'll meet somebody you really love or have some great experience, but attaching to hope takes you to despair. By wise reflection, we begin to understand the things that create misery in our lives. We see that we are actually the creators of that misery. Through our ignorance, through not having wisely understood the sensory world and its limitations, we have identified with all that is unsatisfactory and impermanent, the things that can only take us to despair and death. No wonder life is so depressing. It's dreary because of the attachment, because we identify and seek ourselves in all that is, by nature, dukkha, unsatisfactory and imperfect. When we stop doing that, when we let go, that is enlightenment. We are enlightened beings, no longer attached, no longer identified with anything, no longer deluded by the sense world. We understand the sense world. We know how to coexist with it. We know how to use the sensory world for compassionate action, for joyous giving. We no longer demand that it be here to satisfy us, to make us feel secure and safe, or to give us anything, because as soon as we demand that it should satisfy us, it takes us to despair. When we no longer identify with the sense world as me or mine and see it as anatta, we can enjoy the senses without seeking sense contact or depending on it. We no longer expect conditions to be anything other than what they are, so that when they change, we can patiently and peacefully bear the unpleasant side of existence. We can humbly endure sickness, pain, cold, hunger, failures, and criticisms, if we're not attached to the world, we can adapt to change, whatever that change may be, whether it's for the better or the worse. If we're still attached, we can't adapt very well. We're always struggling, resisting, trying to control and manipulate everything, and then feeling frustrated, frightened or depressed at what a delusive, frightening place the world is. If you've never really contemplated the world, never taken the time to understand and know it, it becomes a frightening place for you. It becomes like a jungle. You don't know what's behind the next tree or bush or cliff, a wild animal, a ferocious man-eating tiger, a terrible dragon or a poisonous snake. Nibbana means getting away from the jungle. When we incline towards Nibbana, we move towards peace of mind. Although the conditions of the mind may not be peaceful at all, the mind itself is a peaceful place. Here we make a distinction between the mind and the conditions of mind. The conditions of mind can be happy, miserable, elated, depressed, 
loving or hating, worrying or fear-ridden, doubting or bored. They come and go in the mind, but the mind itself, like the space in this room, stays just as it is. The space in this room has no quality to elate or depress. It is just as it is. To concentrate on the space in the room, we have to withdraw our attention from the things in it. If we concentrate on the things in it, we become happy or unhappy. We say, look at that beautiful Buddha image. Or if we see something we find ugly, we say, oh, what a terrible, disgusting thing. We can spend our time looking at the people in the room, thinking whether we like this person or dislike that person. We can form opinions about people being this way or that way, remember what they did in the past, speculate about what they will do in the future, seeing others as possible sources of pain or gratification to ourselves. However, if we withdraw our attention, that doesn't mean we have to push everyone else out of the room. If we don't concentrate on or absorb into any of the conditions, we have a perspective because the space in the room has no quality to depress or relate. It can contain us all. All conditions can come and go within it. Moving inwards, we can apply this to the mind. The mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. It doesn't really matter whether it is filled or has nothing in it because we always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through it without our being caught in blind reaction, struggling resistance, control, or manipulation. So when we abide in the emptiness of our minds, we move away, not getting rid of things, but no longer absorbing into conditions that exist in the present or creating any new ones. This is our practice of letting go. We let go of our identification with conditions by seeing that they are all impermanent and not self. This is what we mean by vipassana meditation. It's really looking, witnessing, listening, observing that whatever comes must go. Whether it's coarse or refined, good or bad, Whatever comes and goes is not what we are. We're not good, we're not bad. We're not male or female, beautiful or ugly. These are changing conditions in nature. They are not self. This is the Buddhist way to enlightenment, going towards Nibbana, inclining towards the spaciousness or emptiness of mind, rather than being born and caught up in the conditions of mind. You may ask, if I'm not the conditions of mind, if I'm not a man or a woman, this or that, then what am I? Do you want me to tell you who you are? Would you believe me if I did? What would you think if I started asking you who I am? It's like trying to see your own eyes. You can't know yourself because you are yourself. You can only know what is not yourself. And that solves the problem, doesn't it? If you know what is not yourself, there is no question about what you are. If I said, who am I? I'm trying to find myself and started looking under the shrine, under the carpet, under the curtain. You'd think, Venerable Sumedho has really flipped out. He's gone crazy. He's looking for himself. I'm looking for me. Where am I? Is the most stupid question in the world. The problem is not who we are, but our belief and identification with what we are not. That's where the suffering is. That's where we feel misery and depression and despair. It's our identifying with everything that is not ourselves that is dukkha.
when you identify with that which is unsatisfactory, it's obvious that you'll be dissatisfied and discontented. So the path of the Buddhist is a letting go rather than trying to find anything. The problem is blind attachment, blind identification with the appearance of the sensory world. You needn't get rid of the sensory world, but learn from it, watch it, no longer allow yourselves to be deluded by it. Keep penetrating it with Buddha wisdom. Keep using this Buddha wisdom so that you become more at ease with being wise rather than making yourself become wise. Just by listening, observing, being awake, being aware, the wisdom will become clear. You'll be using wisdom with regard to your body, thoughts, feelings, memories, emotions, all of those things. You'll see and witness them, allow them to pass by and let them go. So at this time you have nothing to do except be wise from one moment to the next. So that's the end of that uh, demo talk. Are there any comments or questions that people have? Okay, we just have a few minutes left, so I think I'll just start um, another talk here, and uh, whatever I don't finish, I can read uh, tomorrow evening. And this next talk by Lampo Samedo is on mindfulness of breathing. We tend to overlook the ordinary. We are usually only aware of our breath when it's abnormal, like if we have asthma or when we've been running hard. But with Anapanasati, we take our ordinary breath as the meditation object. We don't try to make the breath long or short or controlled in any way but simply to stay with the normal inhalation and exhalation. The breath is not something that we create or imagine. It is a natural process of our bodies that continues as long as life lasts, whether we concentrate, concentrate on it or not. So it is an object that is always present. We can turn to it at any time. We don't have to have any qualifications to watch our breath. We do not even need to be particularly intelligent. All we have to do is to be aware of and content with one inhalation and exhalation. Wisdom does not come from studying great theories and philosophies, but from observing the ordinary. The breath lacks any exciting quality or fascination, and so we can become very restless and averse to it. Our desire is always to get something, to find something that will interest and absorb us without any effort on our part. If we hear some music, we don't need to think, I must concentrate on this fascinating and exciting rhythmic music. We can't stop ourselves because the rhythm is so compelling that it pulls us in. The rhythm of our normal breathing is not interesting or compelling. It is tranquilizing and most beings aren't used to tranquility. Most people like the idea of peace, but find the actual experience of it disappointing or frustrating. They desire stimulation, something that will draw them into itself. With Anapanasati, we stay with an object that is quite neutral. We don't have any strong feelings of liking or disliking for our breath. And just note the beginning of an inhalation, its middle and end, then the beginning of an exhalation, its middle and end. As the gentle rhythm of the breath is slower than the rhythm of thought, it takes us to tranquility. We begin to stop thinking but we don't try to get anything from the meditation. 
to achieve samadhi or jhana because when the mind is trying to achieve or attain things, rather than just being humbly content with one breath, it doesn't slow down and become calm and we become frustrated. At first the mind wanders off. Once we are aware that we have wandered off the breath, we very gently return to it. We use the attitude of being very, very patient and always willing to begin it again. Our minds are not used to being held down. They have been taught to associate one thing with another and form opinions about everything. Being accustomed to using our intelligence and ability to think in clever ways, we tend to become very tense and restless when we can't do that. And when we practice Anapanasati, we feel resistance, a resentment of it. We are like a wild horse when it is first harnessed, becoming angry with the things that bind it. When the mind wanders, we grow upset and discouraged, negative and averse to the whole thing. If out of frustration we try by sheer will to force the mind to be tranquil, we can only keep that up for a short while before the mind is off somewhere else. So the right attitude to Anapanasati is being very patient, having all the time in the world, letting go or discarding all worldly personal problems. During this time, there's nothing we have to do except watch our breath. If the mind wanders on the in-breath, then put more effort into the inhalation. If the mind wanders on the exhalation, then put more effort into that. Keep bringing the mind back. Always be willing to start anew. At the start of each new day, at the beginning of each inhalation, cultivate the beginner's mind, carrying nothing from the old to the new, leaving no traces, like a big bonfire. One inhalation and the mind wanders, so we bring it back again, and that itself is a moment of mindfulness. We are training the mind like a good mother trains her child. A little child doesn't know what it is doing. It can wander off, and if the mother is angry with it and spanks it, the child becomes terrified and neurotic. A good mother will just leave the child, keeping an eye on it, and if it wanders, she will bring it back. Having that kind of patience, we're not trying to bash away at ourselves, hating ourselves, hating our breath, hating everybody, getting upset because we can't become tranquil with Anapanasati. Sometimes we're too serious about everything, totally lacking in joy and happiness with no sense of humor, just repressing everything. Gladden the mind, put a smile on your dial, be relaxed and at ease, without the pressure of having to achieve anything special. Nothing to attain, no big deal, nothing special. And what can you say you have done today to earn your board and keep? Just one mindful inhalation? Crazy, but that is more than most people can say of their day. We're not battling the forces of evil. If you feel averse to Anapanasati, note that too. Don't feel it's something you have to do, but let it be a pleasure something you really enjoy doing. When you think, I can't do it, recognize that as resistance, fear or frustration, and then relax. Don't make this practice into a difficult thing, a burdensome task. When I was first ordained, I was dead serious, very grim and solemn about myself, like a dried up old stick. And I used to get in terrible states thinking, I've got to, I've got to. At those times I learned to contemplate peace doubts and restlessness, discontent and aversion. Soon I was able to reflect on peace, 
saying the word over and over, hypnotizing myself to relax, the self-doubt would start coming. I'm getting nowhere with this. It's useless. I want to get something. But as I was able to be peaceful with that. This is one method you can use. So when we're tense, we relax and then resume anapanasati. At first, we feel hopelessly clumsy, like when we're learning to play the guitar. When we first start playing, our fingers are so clumsy it seems hopeless. But when we've done it for some time, we gain skill and it is quite easy. We learn to witness what's going on in our mind so we can know when we're becoming restless and tense or when we're becoming dull. We recognize that. We're not trying to convince ourselves it's otherwise. We're fully aware of the way things are. We sustain effort for one inhalation. If we can't do that, then we sustain it for half an inhalation at least. In this way, we don't try to become perfect all at once. We don't have to do everything just right according to some idea of how it should be but we work with the problems that are there. If we have a scattered mind, it's wisdom to recognize the mind that goes all over the place, that is insight, to think that we shouldn't be that way, to hate ourselves or feel discouraged because that is the way we happen to be, that is ignorance. We don't start from where a perfect yogi is. We're not doing complicated postures before we can bend over and touch our toes. That is the way to harm ourselves. We may look at all the postures in yoga books and see people wrapping their legs around their necks in all kinds of amazing postures, but if we try to do them ourselves, they'll cart us off to the hospital. So we start from just trying to bend a little more from the waist, examining the pain and resistance to it, learning to stretch gradually. The same with Anapanasati. We recognize the way it is now and start from there. We sustain our attention a little longer and we begin to understand what concentration is. Don't make Superman resolutions when you're not Superman. Don't say, I'm going to sit and watch my breath all night and become angry when you fail. Set periods that you know you can do. Experiment, work with the mind until you know how to put forth effort and how to relax. So we're just about out of time, so I'll just uh, leave it there for this evening and Tomorrow we'll finish uh, the rest of this talk. And are there any last comments or questions that people have? Just had a comment uh, on that, uh, going back to the sutta of uh, that footnote that when you have an unwholesome mental state, you should be humiliated, horrified, and uh, aghast. And um, I think uh, a lot of us come, Lumpur Sumedho included, comes to the practice in the beginning, with those types of those uh, uh, types of attitudes, where everything's very grim, and uh, the unwholesome mind is is even though it's not self, it just keeps keeps occurring, and we don't know what to do about it. So I think this uh, practice of what Ajahn Chah suggests is uh, when you bow, you just you can imagine just asking forgiveness from the Buddha for any unwholesome mental states. So anytime you bow, and I found for myself doing that, it helped me to feel like I was actually doing something in her, in terms of not just letting things run their course or allowing it to still be unwholesome, but uh, but that each day, oh, there's, there's a little drop in the bucket of just, okay, I'm acknowledging there might be some unwholesome mental states, bow, ask forgiveness, or, or each morning doing a little 
ceremony in Arcuti um, along the same lines, something like that, just that there's some acknowledgement or some, uh, some physical manifestation of, of uh, say, asking forgiveness for one's unwholesome mental states that, are, that one is not, a, not yet able to overcome or, or uh, let go of. And that can uh, lighten things. That can lighten things quite a bit, so it doesn't become too heavy. And that there's that our practice doesn't become just like very uh, hunched up and dry. Okay. Thank you.